We are now entering the fourth chapter of the Epistle of St. James, the Brother of God, which refers to a variety of different subjects. This is also true of the fifth and final chapter, and it can be said that the purpose of these chapters is to induce and urge the Christians to fight against certain passions and imperfections. In today's topic, St. James refers to fights and quarrels among Christians, and he analyzes why Christians and people in general quarrel and fight with each other. This is a general subject that could refer to every human being, but especially for Christians because the epistle is written for baptized Christians and not unbelievers. However, there is a point in this chapter that no one could imagine was referring to Christians. But St. James makes mention of this. This seems inconceivable for Christians. St. James discusses the possibility of murder even among Christians. Murder among Christians even back in those days, it seems hard to believe. It would be like telling someone, listen, be a good practicing Christian, develop a good Christian personality, stay close to Christ, read the Bible, and be careful. Don't kill anyone. Not kill anyone? How can a Christian possibly kill? This verse which we will look into has troubled many interpreters, has troubled them so much that they have tried to give uh, various interpretations, uh, some allegorical, but if we keep in mind that many Christians and Christians of our days are capable of killing, even though they may, they may be considered good Christians by many, then I think we can interpret exactly what St. James has written. And we will plainly see what was in St. James' mind at the time of the epistle. And now we read in chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us tends towards envy? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. These ten verses of the fourth chapter refer to the subject of quarreling, wars and battles, fights, arguments, etc. So where are the wars and battles among you come from? 
don't they come from your quests of pleasures which are soldiering in your members and are soldiering your members to turn against each other? My friends, this is a wonderful point of view. And if this point of view were to be understood, at least by the Christian nations, then we could truly have peace on earth forever. These words of St. James have validity among persons within the church, within our congregations. As we very well know, arguments don't only take place among neighbors or at home or at the place of work, but also within the church, not to mention at general assemblies. But the same words of St. James have also the same validity among nations and their relationships. We have the same basic anatomy here. The psychology is the same as to why people have battles and wars. Now, war is a state of animosity against someone else. Battle is an escalation of this state of animosity against this someone else. We can be at a state of war with someone. In other words, we are both angry at each other. And at some point when we meet, we have it out, we yell, and we insult and beat each other. And this is considered a battle. But previous to this battle, we maintain a state of war. In the original Greek text, St. James starts out, where are the wars and battles come from among you? And this is why Father Athanasius makes this distinction between a war zone and the actual battle. So St. James wants to dissect these situations, break them down, and find the cause to help us Christians. So he points out the cause. Let's pay attention to the word that he uses. Don't they come from your idoness? Surprisingly enough, we use the root of this word in English. The word hedonism, hedonist, meaning pleasure, lust, sensuality. Not desires, as some English texts have it, but pleasures. Later on, he will talk about desires because it is desire that gives birth to pleasure. But here, he attacks the heart of the problem, which is pleasure. Now, what is pleasure? Something that satisfies me, anything that gives me satisfaction, anything from sensual pleasure to anything that could gratify my senses and my body. Because we have pleasures of the body and the soul. Pleasure, by the way, does not mean joy. Joy is something different. So a bodily pleasure is whatever could make the members of the body feel good, such as, let's say, sexual pleasure, gluttonous pleasure, or pleasures of the palate, when we seek exotic foods constantly or drink to get drunk, all these things are pleasures that please the body. We also have pleasures of the soul, and some of these are, let's say, what I see, 
and what I hear. For instance, I watch a show that satisfies my soul, or I hear some type of music that satisfies my soul, but what I see and hear has a double effect. It satisfies the soul and the body, because when I listen to music and I dance, I satisfy my soul and my body from the dance. It is somewhat true that modern rock music does not simply satisfy the youth, but it seems to bring tremendous pleasure to the point where some people will dance until they pass out. At a rock concerts, people get literally drunk from the type of music they go out of themselves. And we have many cases of vandalism, rioting, and all kinds of destruction after these concerts. And in various studies that have taken place, it has been found that this type of music often refers to the worship of Satan. And this explains why this music harms people in general. When we listen to ecclesiastical music, hymns of the church, do we lose control? Do we feel like ripping the pews out of the church, like the fans of rock groups often do? Uh, they do this to the bleachers of stadiums or at uh, auditoriums where these people perform? Not really. On the contrary, Byzantine and ecclesial music in general calms the soul, calms the spirit. When King Saul was being tormented by demons, he had David play the harp to relax him, to calm his spirit. Music and fine arts in general, when they are from God, they calm the spirit. So in the case of rock and roll music and dance, the pleasure is mixed and it affects body and soul. But we also have pleasures that affect only the soul. Such a pleasure would be the pleasure that a person feels when he is very wealthy or he feels that he's better or smarter than others or he has the best car, the best car on the market or the most expensive one or the pleasure of being in control of other people, having authority and power. And it seems that this last one being power hunger, it is on the top of the list of pleasures for the soul. We saw this many times in history. Caligula, the Roman emperor, in his quest for control and power, was driven to insanity. He was saying, how do I wish that the entire Roman Empire had but one head so I could behead it and kill everyone with one move of my sword? This was an intense, sick pleasure and an expression that gave him the feeling that he was in power, he was in charge. Many criminals today feel pleasure when they kill. They feel powerful. These are not your everyday offenders or people who simply lose their temper and stab each other. But here we have people that seek pleasure out of killing to the point 
where they will abuse the dead corpses. This is a pleasure of the soul, and a soul that has gone sick and distorted and literally bankrupt. But all these pleasures that refer to the body or the soul or both have nothing to do whatsoever with contentment and pure joy. Nothing at all. The Lord said, I desired a desire to eat this Easter, this Pascha, with you. I desired a desire. I translate from the Greek text. This is a holy desire, a holy desire to eat with those that he loved. He loved them perfectly and until the very end. We can also desire to go listen to a sermon or take a trip to visit a monastery or the Holy Land. This is a holy desire. We can even have some bodily enjoyments that are from God, some basic enjoyments. God made the fruit sweet, the grapes, the apples, the figs. They are created sweet so we can have some enjoyment from them, not pleasure, but simply enjoyment. The Lord said, if you give a glass of cold water to a thirsty person, you will profit. Why cold water and not just regular water? The Lord said cold water because on a very hot day, cold water is a very enjoyable and satisfying thing to have, which shows that there are some enjoyments that are in accordance with the law of God and have nothing to do with pleasures. Enjoyment means for someone to feel content with the things that God has given him in their natural state without abusing and violating them to try something more. This extra, this quest of more, is the element of pleasure. When we chase after this type of pleasure, when we have the attitude, I want to try it all, then, number one, we don't thank God for the blessings that he gave us. Number two, we introduce the element of pleasure in our lifestyle, which becomes habitual and sinful. So God allows simple enjoyment that he provides for us but never unnatural pleasures because they are sinful. A small example. The Holy Scripture says that bread strengthens men and wine gladdens the heart. The Greek word ephrosini, ephreno, used in the Scriptures, means exactly that, a feeling of mild enjoyment, a lifting of the spirits. So gladdens the heart means that if you drink a glass of wine, you feel certain enjoyment, you get a nice feeling. It helps you digest, it has a nice taste, it is satisfying. So far, so good. Now, if I begin to drink more, then I go beyond this simple, simple enjoyment. I go after pleasure, and then I get drunk. So the Word of God allows us to have some wine, but it condemns drunkenness. St. Paul writes to Timothy, use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Have some wine. 
St. Paul also says in another epistle, do not get drunk. Do not get drunk with wine. Not do not drink, but do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery or hedonism or pleasure-seeking. In the final analysis, hedonism or pleasure-seeking can become the purpose of my existence. Pleasure can become the motivating force in my life. In other words, I am flirting with idolatry. Why do I want to be rich? Why do I argue with others? Because I want to have plenty of money to spend as I please to throw around so I can use every possible method to acquire wealth because the purpose of my life has become the pursuit of luxurious and pleasurable living. And to be able to support this type of pleasurable living, I must have a lot of money. This can lead to greed of many types, which St. Paul calls idolatry, meaning the absence of God regardless if I received an Orthodox Christian baptism, I exchange spirit for matter. One of the most popular books of all times in the arena of financial success is the book titled Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Mr. Hill, in his attempt to sell many of his ideas to his readers, suggests that the highest motivating force in a man is his desire to please a woman. And he openly suggests not to believe in the teachings of the Christian God because you will not reach your true potential. On our study of the New Age movement, we mentioned a few things about Mr. Hill and also some of the other books of similar types. And we also mentioned that a lot of these financial books, and especially this one of, of the, the book of Mr. Hill, was written with the assistance of the ascended masters by using channeling. And the ascended masters are the benevolent spirits of the New Age movement, which our church calls demons. I warn our listeners who may be involved in the sales profession, multi-level marketing, and the sales profession in general. The teachings of positive mental attitude, positive thinking, possibility thinking, self-confidence, and all self-esteem books are based on the demonic notion that you can become successful and happy without Christ, without God. You are repeating the sin of Adam and Eve all over again. Reach the human potential without Christ. As Christians, we believe that everything good comes from above and not from the great power that somehow locked away inside of us. Again, according to Mr. Hill and his Think and Grow Rich schemes, the purpose of our life is to acquire wealth to be able to taste all pleasures of life because the object of life is to see how much satisfaction we can give to our flesh. This is modern-day idolatry because the center of our life is the tasting of all pleasures. 
Unfortunately, many of our Christians believe that life has no meaning unless we can afford and live a life of pleasure. Often, you hear church-going people say all these things are part of life. We must have it all. Again, these pleasures can be psychosomatic, pleasures of the soul and the body. We must have discretion. St. Paul warns us, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, meaning that I should choose my spiritual diet in the same way I choose my physical diet. I can eat all kinds of foods, but they may not agree with me. I will choose only what's beneficial. So pleasure becomes an idol that's worshipped by people. Simple enjoyment, on the other hand, becomes the means through which God is glorified. When I am extremely thirsty and I drink a glass of cold water, I will give glory to God. When we are extremely hungry and we are about to eat, we give glory to God. That's why we pray before we eat to glorify God. And also we pray so the food in front of us does not turn into a pleasure or an idol, but a simple enjoyment through which we give glory to God. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your pleasures which are soldiering in your members? So the pleasures do battle with the members of the body, meaning the ears that want to hear, the eyes that desire to see, the belly, the reproductive organs. All these things want to try the different pleasures. So the pleasures seduce the members of the body. They capture the members of the body, so to speak. And now they draft these body members to be satisfied. This shows something that is very superficial and unnatural, something sort of parasitic, just like when, we, when a new boat first enters the sea. It slips through the water with great ease. After some years, thousands of barnacles may attach themselves at its bottom, dragging along all kinds of seaweeds and other excess excess weight, which is not part of the boat. And this weight can slow the boat down and may damage the entire boat. The same thing holds true for the pleasures. They were not created by God. They came like mountain ticks and stuck on our members. It's amazing how these ticks have the instinct to settle at animals, at an animal's neck, in a place where the animal cannot reach them very easily. Another way to see the great wisdom of God, how would a tick know to settle at an animal's neck, which would ensure its survival? God made it that way, so the tick will settle at its host's neck or head, to give it its food, which is blood. So the tick is a parasite, and it drinks our pet's blood, even though it has nothing to do with the animal. The pleasure and passion act in the same way on our members.
And worse yet, these pleasures send us to hell. So now we will understand where these fights and battles come from. If I go out to seek pleasures of the body or of the soul, soul or body, since the motive is egotism and self-gratification, and my attitude is, as long as I get what I want, I don't care if the world burns. I don't care on how many bodies I have to step on as long as I reach my goal. Pleasure and egotism go hand in hand. The one feeds the other. Even modern psychology says if you want to cure your passions, then cure your egotism. This happens to be very true. This is why the humble person is never a hedonist. The truly humble person avoids all pleasures. St. James, later on in this chapter, will offer humility as the cure for all these passions and pleasures. In reality, egotism arises desire, and desire gives rise to all pleasure. So the source of all pleasure and desires is egotism. And because the egotistical person sets out to gratify his desires and seeks these pleasures, he is ready to fight. He is ready to go to war. This is true in, in all levels, whether at home or at church or in his community. Unless he gets his own way, he will start war. This attitude can become the attitude of an individual or an entire nation where one nation will go to war to grab territory or to enslave the other nation. Germany went to war because of the lack of living space. It needed more room for its own people. So one way to get more room is to grab it from someone else. This suggests nothing but selfish egotism. People that were in World War II still remember the slogan Deutschland über alles, meaning Germany over and above everyone. Pride, ego, selfishness describe the attitude of the German people at that time, describing themselves as the superior race. This was the attitude of the Nazi party, Nazi Germany, and not all German people, I'm sure. But this is the result of selfish ambition with individual, organizational, and national consequences. St. James here is specifically referring to the church and fighting among Christians. Christians who may fight to be on the parish council. People that think that they deserve it more than others. Or someone might think, I want to be the president or the treasurer of the church. And we end up having 10 people wanting to be presidents of the parish. So the war begins within Christian congregations. We even have incidents where parishes and 
parishioners campaign heavily to elect certain board members. And St. James continues, you want something and you don't get it. You murder and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight because you do not ask God. So you desire something so bad, but you don't succeed. And in order to succeed, sometimes you may even consider murder. You become enraged and possessed with such jealousy that you will stop at nothing to satisfy your desire. You may even attempt murder and you cannot succeed. People will scheme abductions and killings and robberies to satisfy their desires. What good is it when they get some of these desires satisfied temporarily and then they end up in jail for the rest of their lives? Always in danger of being killed and not on this earth. God knows what awaits them after that. I assure you, my friends, that the most foolish person, the most unfortunate person in the entire creation is the egotistical and selfish person. As we have varying degrees of egotism among, amongst us, we also have varying degrees of stupidity. The egotist believes that he will enjoy his life, he will succeed in this game called life. Not according to St. James. You kill and you covet, but you cannot succeed. You will never succeed in life. You will never have true joy and peace when you kill, grab, and are constantly on the run. This is not success. All this, all this is the result of foolish egotism. Another equally foolish person is the extremely wealthy person that does not know how to use his wealth properly. St. James will discuss this problem as well the problem of wealth abuse. These people are truly unfortunate and impoverished. They worked a lifetime to pile wealth and now they cannot enjoy it because they lost their perspective. They are poor souls. Some of the well-known billionaires were still reaching for dollars even on their deathbed. They sold out true joy and peace of heart for something that totally enslaved them. Greed is one of the seven deadly sins that's guaranteed to send the soul to hell. We are foolish when we lose the peace of our soul because of desires or wants or selfishness. You quarrel and fight you do not have because you don't ask God. In other words, the object of your desire does not become the object of your prayer because we can desire many things which we can make objects of our prayer. But we must be careful. If what I desire is sinful, then when I'm about to ask God, I will begin to get a lump in my throat. I will lose boldness. I will come to my senses at the time of prayer. 
I will reconsider thinking, how can I possibly ask God for something unlawful? So at that point, I may have a change of heart and eliminate that desire that did not agree with the will of God. My conscience assisted by guilt will help me to change my thinking on a few things. This is a possibility. Strangely enough, we have Christians that are not affected at all by their conscience, and they continue to ask God for unlawful and sinful things. Something that happens often is for people to light their candle and pray to God for a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and not necessarily for the purpose of marriage. Marriage may be the last thing on their mind. Is God going to answer such prayers? No, because when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. God will not give us things that are sinful and unlawful, things that would be utilized to add to our evil desires and pleasures. Now, God is doing this and is always acting out of kindness and out of mercy. He wants to keep us from destruction. But let's go one step farther. When God sees that we are so corrupt, so corrupt to the point that he sees no possibility for our repentance and salvation, then let's embrace ourselves at this point. My friends, this is awful. When God sees that our heart will never change, then he gives us what we ask. God may give us what we ask regardless if it is sinful or not. God allows these things to come to us. God does give or grant these things. So God who would ordinarily, ordinarily keep these things from the pious Christian, he now allows them for the hopeless, corrupt, hopelessly corrupt person. He concedes. He hands these things over to this person. Just like he allows the spirit of delusion or falsehood to come over people who did not choose the light and this concession of God because of evil desires acts as a final punishment. And when God concedes these foolish and evil requests to people, people who are full of pride and egotism, then there is little or no possibility for return of repentance. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Matthew 12, 45. This is truly terrible. Let's not ask God for evil and sinful desires. Lord, why don't you give this or that? That's what I want. I want to see a vision. I want to see an angel. I want to see a miracle. There was a lady in Greece that made that constant request of her, to her prayers, in her prayers, every day. Lord, I want to see you. I want to see a vision. I want to see you here on earth. Please let me see you. I am so sinful, so I will not see you at the other life, so please let me see you in this life. 
This lady prayed like this for years, and even though her words conveyed humility, she was harboring a severe degree of pride. So after years of asking God, God conceded. He made a concession. She saw Christ, and the spirit of pride overtook her to the point where she thought she no longer needed the church and the lowly priests. What do they know anyhow? She saw Christ with her own eyes, so she reached her goal. My friends, I'm very much afraid that this, the above scenario, describes fairly clearly the predicament of the miracle-hungry and heretical Pentecostals. Several years ago, we tried to unglue from them several of our orthodox young people who fell in their traps. After months and months of teachings, they have yet to return to orthodox worship, at least not all of them, even though they denounced the Pentecostal teachings. Let's be careful because we have quite a few Greek ministers who appear as Orthodox, but they are Pentecostal. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. You adulteresses, don't you know that love with the world is hatred towards God? The Greek text says adulteresses or michalides, where the English text says you adulterous people. The reason for this is that the soul is represented as the bride. The church is the bride and the Christ is the bridegroom. So St. James here does not mean that all those Christians committed adultery, but in a spiritual sense, these people were the body of Christ, his church, his bride, and this bride began to look at other grooms. So this bride took her eyes off her bridegroom, desiring other interests and pleasures from different husbands. So in this sense, when the people of God are seeking idols, they begin to idolize their passions, then this church of people becomes an adulteress. So when the Christians are living a life of godlessness, their pleasures and desires rule their lives, they betray their bridegroom, and then they become a wicked and adulterous generation. St. James calls out and labels Christians as adulteresses who fight and war over evil passions and pleasures. Don't you know that love of the world is hatred towards God? Of course you know you have the gospel, and the gospel talks about crucifixion of passions. Christ taught a gospel of the cross. Whoever wants to follow me must pick up his cross and follow me. Don't you know this? And instead of picking up your cross, you are picking up every type of passion and pleasure and lust? Don't you know that the love of the world is hatred towards God? So what is this love for the world? The world hates the cross of Christ. The world teaches pleasures and slavery to passions. 
So you are denying Christ's gospel and are following the pleasures of the world. So you live like enemies of the cross of Christ and by betraying the cross of Christ, you live a life that goes against God. You live as an enemy of God when you love the world. And what do we mean by the word world? St. Isaac the Syrian explains this very beautifully. And he says that the world, it is a collection of all the passions. The world is the collection of all the passions. Vainglory, greed, pride, fornication, anger, jealousy. If you take all of these single passions and you bunch them together, then the collective name which represents all these passions is called world. So these passions which battle and enslave our members bring in terrible results such as fights and arguments and divisions. All these different passions are the world. How can all these things be likable to God? That's why he who loves the world, meaning the world of passions, has no part with God. So St. James wants to warn us because the words of the people in general is a source of egotism. When we say, what would the people think if I tell them that I go to a Bible study? Or, or what would my co-workers think when I tell them that I go to church every Sunday? Or what would people think if I make my cross in a restaurant then I have friendship with the world and may still be an enemy of God. Are we more concerned about what the world may think, much more so than what God may think? We have people that are embarrassed to tell their friends that they go to confession or that they take Holy Communion frequently. In the final analysis, this is directly related to our level of love towards God. As we grow and mature in our faith, we will develop the fourth level of faith that leads to love towards God. And when that happens, we will see that we will be immune to all of the above, all of the world pressures. We will become dead as far as the world is concerned. When a wino holds on to his bottle, walking through the city, he does not care who is watching him. He's at a state of bliss because he has the love of his heart next to him. When Christ becomes the bridegroom of our soul, in the same way, we don't care about what anybody will think or say about us. We couldn't care less because we found the treasure of our heart. Now we can begin to understand how our saints stayed 20, 30, 50 years in a cave or in the heat of the desert or on a tree. They first killed their passions and then they were able to see the love of God constantly and with their own natural eyes. So anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us tends towards envy, but He gives us more grace? This is a difficult verse, a strange verse. This verse is not to be found in the Old Testament, and this presents a real problem to the scholars because St. James suggests that Scripture says this. The best interpretation that can be given is that this has to do with the spirit of the Old Testament, the Old Testament verses that suggest that God is a jealous God. I am a jealous God. God uses this expression not in a human form, but because the form Bride, bridegroom, bridegroom, which we discussed a little earlier, the relationship between the soul and God, husband and wife. And since the wife is flirting with other men, she is ablazing the jealousy of her husband. So God does not get jealous like we do. God is passionless, but he wants to demonstrate his extreme love towards his creation. Since you, my people, are flirting with idols, I get jealous, I burn, and I will punish you, as in the case of a husband who may punish his wife severely when she betrays him. So by the statement, jealous God, the Lord wants to protect the Jews and keep them from flirting with other gods or idols, but stay true to the true God, so the meaning of this verse is this. The Holy Spirit lives inside you, and the Holy Spirit loves you tremendously. Truly, we can never comprehend how much God loves us. So the Holy Spirit loves you tremendously. You've received Him when you were baptized and chrismated. Now, why do you provoke the Holy Spirit by flirting with the world. St. Paul speaks along the same lines. Do not sadden the Spirit of God by which you were sealed on the day of your deliverance. And this is the true meaning of this verse. So God wants us to be exclusively His. And anything we do, it must be from God, with God, and for God.